Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Very nice to be with you. And I have to say, it's been a fantastic sporting weekend if you support the same teams as I do. But from the amazing on the field to the absolute ridiculous is what we're going to talk about tonight. Should we start with the ridiculous? Um, I, I, I cannot believe the story that's broken this morning. Now, I'm sure you are aware, even if you aren't, you've not been listening to From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. The Mzanzi Challenge, which is a rugby competition, which was due or is still due to be played in South Africa. Well, it's been embroiled in a load of controversy after the South African Rugby Union were allegedly, and I say allegedly because I'm not quite sure who it is, that pressured them. Apparently, it was the Sports, Arts and Culture Minister, Natiem Tetwa, to withdraw the Tel Aviv Heats invitation from the tournament, which, amongst others, includes the Diablis from Spain, the Simbas from Kenya, the Welvichias from Namibia, and the Gosh Hawks from Zimbabwe, who would play alongside the Leopards, the Falker, the Cavaliers, the Eastern Province, Border Bulldogs, and southwestern districts. Now, the team that they have denied access to and withdrawn an invitation to is the Tel Aviv Heat from Israel. Now, a lot of controversy surrounds this decision, and South African rugby has come under fire from the uh, South African uh, Jewish Federation, the South African Friends of Israel, and in fact, a New Zealand lawyer living in New Zealand is actually taking world rugby apparently, to court over this issue for them not standing by the Tel Aviv Heat team. Now, the reason is, from what I understand, and I'm just giving you all the background before I tell you what's so bizarre about this whole story, the reason is apparently that a team from Israel coming to South Africa causes a terrorist threat, and that there is the possibility of ISIS or who knows who, who could disrupt the matches. Now, that in itself is the biggest load of nonsense. I mean, it's a different story. Let's just remember, and I don't want to make this political because clearly I, I'm the sportscaster and not a politician, but it's fine to have Russian warships and Chinese warships off the coast of Simonstown in Cape Town but it's not okay for a rugby team when we need to bear in mind ever in the history of the new South Africa was Francois Pinot and Nelson Mandela walking on at Ellis Park in Johannesburg on the 25th of June 1995 to lift the William Webb Ellis Trophy high in the sky. So there's the history. Let's not worry about whether they should or shouldn't be. And apparently there's some anti-Israeli activists and some groups, Palestinian-based groups in South Africa, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the crux of the story. The most remarkable story out of this all is that the South African rugby president, Mark Alexander, has said that he fears for his life following the withdrawal of the team. He says that when he's driving, he suspects someone is following him and he will call someone to come and get him and protect him. Yes, I know you're chuckling over your cold drink or whatever it is that you might be doing right now. If you're driving your car, I hope you have 
crashed it. Father, who are you? Let's be perfectly honest. You are an administrator who sits in your ivory tower or in a president's box at a rugby game on the weekend, eating yourself into a double prop, drinking whatever it might be, very expensive wines or whatever. You've clearly not made the greatest decisions for South African rugby, hence the fact that the franchises and the likes of Edgar Rathbone, who are doing brilliant work for rugby in South Africa. And here you are saying that because you withdrew the invitation of a club rugby team, which I might add, okay, let me just add this, has many black South Africans playing for it. It is multicultural, this rugby team. This rugby it's headed up by a former UCT uh, rugby player, Kevin Misikanth is his name. It has a good load of South African black rugby players in it. And you, Mr. Alexander, have denied these people the opportunity of playing on the international stage. And now you say this, you are under threat for your life. Get a life, Mr. Alexander. Right, that's the ridiculous. There was some other ridiculous over the weekend, I might add, but we'll talk about that through the course of the podcast. You're listening to From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Uh, you might be wondering what on earth I'm on about. Well, let's talk about the football action from the weekend. Shall we go in reverse? So let's start from yesterday through Friday. Yesterday, glory, glory, Man United. Oh, my goodness. Are the tables beginning to just shift and fall? No, I can't get too excited. Can I? Well, Marcus Rashford, he doesn't stop, does he? He just keeps scoring and scoring and scoring. He showed that he won't be distracted by the race to buy the club, which apparently is the target of not one, two, three, but four people. The Glesser family are considering offers from Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al Thani, who is the chairman of one of Qatari's biggest banks, and British billionaire Jim Ratcliffe. There are apparently other bids as well, and they may be under new ownership, Manchester United, in the next six weeks. But that means absolutely nothing. That's a topic for another day. So a 3-0 victory over Leicester for Manchester United yesterday afternoon. And very impressive indeed. Remarkably, 16 of the goals that he has scored in the 24 times in competition. It's the highest goal tally he's ever managed in a single campaign. Bearing in mind that there's still a long way to go. Now, 16 of those goals have come in 17 appearances since he came back from the World Cup in December. He is also the first United player to score in seven consecutive home league games since Wayne Rooney did it in 2010. Rashford did endure a difficult period before Ten Hag's appointment and, I'm going to say it, before the departure of Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, whether it's just coincidental or not, I don't know, but the uh, record is there to be seen. Two-all draw last Thursday in Barcelona. Five changes to the side, and uh, David Haya made a couple of great saves in the match and another record. He has set he has equaled the number of clean sheets. Now, for those of you who don't know what clean sheets are, they're not something you put over your mattress when you go to bed at night. That is a scoreline of something to nil in favour of Manchester United. No goals, and he's equaled that record held by the great Peter Schmeichel. So, 
Uh, great result for Manchester United. It was also a good result yesterday for Spurs in the London derby. They uh, were incredibly good in uh, their match. Once they got the first goal, they were in total control. Um, and the problem that they have, even though the result was absolutely fantastic for them, they've come out this morning. Uh, they are very annoyed with what they have called reprehensible racist abuse of Son Hyung Ming. They've called for social media companies and authorities to take action after the online racist abuse directed at Son Hyung Ming following his goal against West Ham yesterday. The South Korean captain emerged from the bench in the second half, gets Spurs' second goal in their 2 win in the derby at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And they have been made aware of the utterly reprehensible online racist abuse directed at him during the match. And they stand with him once again for a call on social media companies and authorities to take action. Yeah, it's something that is rife in in the UK, not just on the football fields, but it, it really, really is horrendous what's going on there. So those were the two matches yesterday. Spurs 2-0 victors over West Ham, Manchester United 3-0 victors over Leicester. And then on the weekend, Liverpool fans will be delighted on Saturday that their team got back to winning ways after the victory in midweek against Everton, a 2-0 victory over Newcastle, which I'm sure has brightened the smile of teams around that top five, including Spurs and Manchester United. Because Newcastle have sort of slipped away at the moment. That uh, top four position, they were really good. And now they've kind of had a bad run. Liverpool, two wins in a row. That's fantastic for them. Brighton over Albion, lost at home to Fulham. And they've had a great run so far this season. I'll be disappointed with losing at home. And then the result that both Arsenal and Manchester United fans were delighted about, Nottingham Forest. My goodness, we're talking about a team who at the beginning of the season couldn't string three passes together. Well, they've had great run and great success against the top teams in the league. A one-all draw at home against Manchester City. They could have actually won it in the end. They didn't. Manchester City will rue the opportunities they missed. But Forrest will be delighted with a point against Man City, I'm sure. When they looked at the fixtures and they went, OK, we can get a point here or two points, three points here. Maybe not this result. Let's be realistic. I think they were realistic as to not get anything out of the game against Man City. So they'll be delighted with that point. Uh, Wills lost at home to Bournemouth by a goal to nil. Chelsea, oh my goodness. What is going on there? They spent billions of rands, millions of pounds, and they lost at home. Again, they lost to Southampton. Oh, goodness, Southampton, who are struggling. They've got rid of their manager. They're in the relegation zone. Anyway, they got a victory. And then Everton under Sean Dyche, they'll be delighted. A six-point swing for them. A 1-0 victory at home over Leeds United. So Sean Dyche has played three games. Uh, he's won both his home games, lost the away game. He'll be delighted with the start that he's had, as will the fans. And Brentford and Crystal Palace drew one all. And then Aston Villa against Arsenal. Oh, my goodness. What a game of football. I mean, and how it ended was quite bizarre. Two all, right up until the end of the match. And then Arsenal scored to go 3-2 up. The whole Aston Villa team came up for a corner, and from the resulting corner, there was a breakaway. So the scoreline definitely flatters to deceive. Magnificent result in the end for Arsenal. They desperately needed those three points 
Little did they know what was obviously coming later in the, the weekend with Manchester City dropping points, Manchester United picking up points, Liverpool beating Newcastle. That two all with the final whistle beckoning, there were a lot of fans who were going, OK, so Arsenal's season really beginning to tumble, but great teams that win the league have results like the one they had scored. Yep. Fergie time, when it was uh, Arsenal time, Aston Villa will be really disappointed dropping all three points. They definitely deserve the point. So, the top of the table looks just like this. Arsenal have played 23 matches. They have 54 points. Manchester City have played 24 matches. They have 52 points. So, clearly, one game more, but they are really in striking distance. But Manchester United are right on the tail of their noisy neighbours. 24 played, 49 points. The only difference is they've had one loss more than Manchester City. Otherwise, four draws each, 16 wins for Man City, 15 wins for United. And uh, the situation there is very close indeed. But no matter whether you finish second, third, to lesser extent, fourth, it's Champions League action for next year. Don't think Man City, or at least Manchester United, can catch Arsenal. Look, it's, it's not a far cry, but it, the odds that the bookmakers, I guess, will definitely be that Arsenal are still the favourites, along with Manchester City, to win the title. You'd get a good price, I guess, from Manchester United. And then seven points now behind Manchester United and uh, 12 points behind Arsenal are their London rivals. Spurs and Newcastle, as I say, they've dropped out of that top four, but they do have a game in hand with 41 points, a game in hand over Spurs. They could uh, leapfrog Spurs into fourth place. Liverpool, in the meantime, have moved up into eight. The, uh, Brighton dropped points at the weekend, so that's given Liverpool the opportunity to level the matters there, 35 points each. But they do both have two games in hand, over Fulham, who have 38 points. Then at the bottom of the table, as I mentioned, Southampton will be delighted with their victory. But not a lot has changed, to be honest, because all the other results either went for them or against them. So they're still bottom with 18 points after 23 matches. Leeds United have played 23 matches. They have 19 points. And West Ham, after yesterday's defeat, are now in the bottom three. They have 20 points from 23 games. But it's still very, very close. Bournemouth, Everton and Wolverhampton Wanderers, Leicester City could all still slip into that relegation zone. Leicester are in 14th, 23 matches played, 24 points. 23 for Wolverhampton Wanderers, 23 points. And Everton, who are slowly moving their way away from the bottom three, they've played 23 games, they have 21 points. And then Bournemouth, 17th, just above that relegation zone. They sit with one point between themselves and West Ham in 18th place. So, great weekend for the Premier League and some results that really went in favour of certainly Manchester United over the weekend. They will be very, very happy indeed. Now, uh, the next round of matches sees uh, Fulham play Wolverhampton Wanderers on Friday night. And then on Saturday, it's Newcastle against Brighton, which has been postponed. I'll tell you why. Then Everton against Aston Villa, Leicester against Arsenal, West Ham against Nottingham Forest, 
Leeds against Southampton, Bournemouth against Manchester City, Crystal Palace against Liverpool. And then on Sunday, Manchester United against Brentford is postponed. And the London derby, Spurs against Chelsea. How much more agony can Spurs pile on Chelsea? Now, the reason for the postponement of those two matches is because either Manchester United are going to pick up their first trophy since Alex Ferguson, basically, or Newcastle will pick up their first trophy since 1955. It is the League Cup final this weekend coming up now. So the League Cup final, and it should be an absolute crackerjack of a match. The last time these two sides played in a final, I was actually there. Manchester United against Newcastle in the FA Cup final in 1999. Rick Cantona, I remember, scored a goal in a very poor FA Cup final. Let's hope this weekend's game is much better than that. Right, let's turn our attention to rugby. And there's still some ludicrous stories coming up. Don't worry, the weekend, as I say, had some fantastic action on the field. And also had some incredible action off the field. Let's talk now, shall we, about rugby. And I'm sure Edgar Rathbone is listening. Hi, Edgar. Evening to you. Any comments? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm laughing, but I shouldn't be because, wow, what a game. What a performance. What a crowd. Over 41,000 people. The largest crowd at Loftus since 2009, as well as the largest crowd in the Southern Hemisphere ever for a United Rugby Championship match. How about that? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I suppose I can gloat a little bit. The result definitely went the way of the Stormers, didn't it? Great performance by them. They did exceptionally well. Very tight game. I mean, I know I'm harping on about the Stormers, but, you know, they've seemed to have the monkey over the bulls in terms of they just keep on beating them. So the Stormers were the big winners as they clinched the South African Shield effectively for the second successive year with a win at Loftus. They've also wrapped up the race, most probably for second place. They will join the Bulls in becoming Sharks and Lions supporters because the action featured two round six matches that were rescheduled from October because of the gastro problems that were suffered by Ulster and the Glasgow Warriors while they were in Umschlunga Rocks. Remember, they were preparing for the game against the Sharks and the Lions. The game is important due to the, for the Sharks, really, as they look to consolidate their position in the top seven. Uh, and they the second half surge in Johannesburg. It would have been more important to the Stormers than it had if they'd not won the derby in Pretoria. Go beaten Ulster on Friday night, but it's still significant if the Sharks win any Ulster potential to second place or evaporates. So... The Loftus Fasfold faithful came out, as I say, in their drones, even though to the game, Dion Ferry was quite open about the fact that he felt that the crowd was 50-50 and uh, it was a lot of support for the Stormers. Now, they played against a full-strength bull side. They didn't have the Stormers, that is, Stephen Kitchoff, Francois Harbour, Marvin Ori, Damien Billups, and Evan Roos. 
Injuries to Salman Murat and Dayamani. And it's a huge testament how they have progressed since uh, the beginning of last year. The Stormers pack that played included just one player in Dion Ferry, who played in last year's final against the Bulls. And there were only three backline players who played in last year's final. So only four, which is a huge testament to what John Dobson has done for the team. Let's have a look at the results from the weekend. Glasgow Warriors 17, Ulster 11, Munster 58, Ospreys 3. What did I say on, on Friday? A few dogs, a couple of policemen, an ice cream seller. Oh, you know, seriously, Ellis Park, Lions. Maybe because they're doing so badly that the crowds don't come out. No nonsense. The crowds just don't go to Ellis Park anymore. So the Lions lost to the Sharks 29-7. They looked terrible. The Bulls 19, the Stormers 23. The Zebra, 34, Connaught, 57. Cardiff beat Benetton, 30 points to 13. The Scarlets beat Edinburgh, 42-14. And Leinster beat the Dragons, 43-14. And as I mentioned, just two matches this weekend, the Sharks against Ulster and the Lions against the Glasgow Warriors. That's your rugby action. And of course, this weekend also, the Six Nations will get back underway. Shall we talk cricket? Hmm. Okay, shall we talk in the boardroom or shall we go to the locker room first? I think let's go to the locker room first. Let's start off by something that always gives me a smile when Australia are beaten. Now, I watched the game yesterday and uh, Ravindra Jadeja was sublime. He spun the Aussies into a frenzy. Seven for 42, helping his team beat the Australians inside three days by six wickets and retain the trophy, the Sunil Gavaskar Allen Border Trophy, by virtue of the fact that it's a four-match series and they lead 2-0 now. The left-arm orthodox spinner teamed up with his uh, compatriot, Ravi Chandran Ashwin. They dismissed Australia for just 113 in a morning session where the tourists imploded. A tricky New Delhi pitch, um, and then India made their way to the target of 115 in the second session and guaranteed them the retention of the trophy. They've won their previous three series against Australia and now close to securing that spot in the World Test Championship final. Rohit Sharma was run out and Bert Kohli surpassed 25,000 international runs in the match. And I don't know offhand how many test matches he's played, but it's... It's a lot. I mean, it really, really is a lot. Can you believe it is the first time in his career in the test arena? It's the first time in his career that he's been outstumped. What a remarkable, remarkable statistic. I know it means absolutely nothing, but I thought you might like those statistics. Now, I don't know how much this is related to the horrendous loss but Pat Cummins has flown home, and uh, apparently there is an illness in his family. I hope everything is okay. He will return, though, to rejoin preparations for the third test after India won the match yesterday. So just a little tidbit there for you. Cummins is on his way home. Hopefully everything 
is okay. And as I mentioned to you, if you haven't had a chance yet to watch that uh, series called The Test on Netflix, get it, have a look at it. It's not, not as good as the first one, but it really, really is excellent. Now, Alan Border, whom the trophy is named after, has come out today with some very harsh words, as has Michael Clark, both, of course, captains. They've denounced the team's batting performance. Panicky and ill-executed was how it has been reported. On uh, Fox News, Border said he's disappointed, shell-shocked, and angry at the way they went about their work. Panicky frenetic, said Border, who scored more than 11,000 test runs and was renowned for his tenacious batting. They they are looking at why his players kept employing the sweep, accelerating their collapse. Well, I think they employed the sweep shot because they thought that was the only way to negate the spin. Okay, so let's look at the Women's World Cup, the ICC Women's T20 World Cup currently on in South Africa. And a result that in a way has helped the Proteas, but not really. They wanted New Zealand to beat Sri Lanka, but I don't think they wanted them to beat them by 102 runs. Well, that was the result of that match yesterday. And then the Pakistani women lost to the West Indies by three by three runs. Amazing, the West Indies haven't won a game in about 15 or 16. And now all of a sudden they've won a couple. So how does it all pan out? Well, let's have a look at the uh, fixtures that remain regards to the Women's World Cup. India and Ireland are currently in action. Sri Lanka play the Lions tomorrow in the third one-day international. And then there's also a warm-up game between the South African Invitation 11. They're up against the West Indies, who are currently in South Africa for their two-test series, which, yes, I am about to speak about in a very short while's time because it has been quite a weekend. So, as I mentioned, New Zealand knocking Sri Lanka out of the T20 competition, and New Zealand have kept their hopes alive with that 102-run victory. And they've moved into second place in the group, one behind defending champions Australia. They could still be overtaken by South Africa, who play Bangladesh tomorrow. So I'm sure there's going to be a huge amount of support for the South African ladies in their quest to get themselves a win. Australia, as I say, top of that group, played 4-1-4 and look unstoppable at the moment. A net run rate of plus 2.149. Uh, New Zealand in second place, uh, played 2-1-2, better run rate than the South Africans. And then Sri Lanka also played 4-1-2, lost 2. And then South Africa played 3 one one lost two, but they have a positive run rate of 0.685 as opposed to New Zealand's 0.138. So a victory for South Africa against Bangladesh tomorrow and South Africa would be in second place and qualify for the semi-finals. In the other group, uh, England are flying, uh, played three, one, three, six points, and India played three, one, two, lost one. The West Indies, I'm afraid, unless India lose dramatically, they are out of the competition. Okay, so I've left the best or the most crazy till last. Depends on, on your thought process. The South African cricket selectors, of which two have been told to go and play basketball or something, which is not a bad thing, because I don't think they were doing a very good job, to be perfectly honest. However, you might have your own views on the decision that has been taken 
by Shukri Conrad to remove Dean Elgar from the captaincy of the Proteus team and install Temper Bavuma as the captain. They've also dropped Lungi and Gini and Rassi from the distance along with Saron Erevia and one or two others from the squad. You've also got a whole lot of spinners in the team to play the West Indies and Temper Bavuma has now been given the captaincy and Aidan Markram is back in the fold and it appears as though he will open the batting with Dean Elgar. Now, depends on which report you read, I don't have an issue with the decision that has been taken because Shukri Conrad is going to have to live with the decision that he's made and he can either be a hero or he can be a failure. However, what does disturb me is the report that I have heard from some key members of the cricketing fraternity whom I have spoken to over the last day or two. And whether it's true or not, I don't know. So remember, this is just what I've heard. That Dean Alga actually was not consulted. Now, you would think this is just the same old, same old in South Africa, like Mark Alexander who thinks his life's under threat, that you would have a conversation with the captain, who the incumbent, the, the man that's done a tremendous job, arguably he's got the second best test record as captain of a captain of South Africa who has captained the team more than 10 times. Only Sean Pollock has a better uh, record. <laughs> what happened to Sean Pollock? It's remember the same thing in terms of Dean Elgar. And you would just think that it would be nice to have a conversation, sit down with a bloke, tell him what the story is and go through it. Now, I'm just saying that's what I've heard. I'm not saying that it didn't happen. And if it did happen, well, I retract everything that I've said. And then I go, well done to Cricket South Africa for the decision to chat to the captain. Whether it's the right or the wrong decision, that's for another day and for another debate, which of course... We like having right here on the boardroom to the locker room. But irrespective, we support the protest, don't we? We want them to win. We are not playing the best, best team in the world in the West Indies. It's just interesting that this is the last two matches of the current test cycle. Now, perhaps the idea would have been to keep the captain and one or two of the other players involved for these two matches. They are playing at home in South Africa on very good South African batting and bowling tracks at uh, Wanderers and Centurion, and then sweep clean and start all over again. Because when, and this is the comments that I've been seeing on social media and whatever, when the, the new captain's form was terrible, everybody kept him on and on and on and waited for him to get some runs. And the question is, are they going to do the same for Dean Elgar? Yes, he had a terrible time in Australia, but then so did everybody have a terrible time in Australia. I leave you with that thought. After tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room, we will have some fantastic guests for you in the coming weeks and coming days. So don't stray or go away. Keep listening to us every evening, South African Standard Time, 6 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. That's 1600 to 1630 GMT, wherever you are in the world. Work it out in your local time zone. That's tonight's edition of From the Ballroom to the Locker Room. Talk to you tomorrow, and as always, be nice to each other. Bye-bye.